The men said to her, This oath you made us swear with not will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied a scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and your family in your house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, this his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head. And if a hand is laid upon him, but if you tell what we are doing, we'll be released from your oath that you may swear. Now, this whole conversation is having why they're happening, hanging from a rope. Moses says she lets him down. Then she's like, okay, go over there. there, there. And they're like, make this oath. Da, 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 da. And you're like, oh my gosh, just get down the rope and hide. They're having this conversation while they're hanging from a rope. And they say, take a red scarlet thread and hold it out the window. When we see that thread, we'll know that that's the house to be saved. Now, what's interesting is she lives inside the city wall. At this time period, they didn't just build houses in the walls, like inside the wall area and outside. They built them into the walls as well. Like, why build like four walls to your house when like three of them are already there in the city wall (laughs) or two of them or whatever, depending on how the wall turns. Like, remember, all walls weren't like just perfectly circle or square. A lot of times they did like this following the ravines or terrain. They're not going to go in the city. What's going to happen to the walls when they come in? Yet she lives in the wall. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? Not only are you experiencing this incredible miracle of God where the city walls just kind of collapsed right in front of you because you just yelled, but at the same time, the only part of the wall that's still standing is the house of Rahab. It doesn't matter whether she marked it with a thread or not. It was God who was going to take care of this whole thing. So they say mark it with a thread. Now the word scarlet is, that's, I don't know, maybe Ohio State fan translated this part. That's, it's actually just red, which I know scarlet and red are kind of the same, but it's red. And a lot of people try to connect that to the blood of Jesus. Like this is a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus, but that's not right. One, the word red is never really ever associated with blood. The Bible never connects blood and red together. We, I mean, everybody knows it's red, but you never really see that. And the only time you ever see this connection of red and blood together is in Kings, when it describes the water looking like the color of blood. So you don't really see that. And the, so the words are not the same. And nothing in this, no blood is ever mentioned, no sacrifice is ever mentioned. There's no reason to connect this except for just, I want to see Jesus and everything which is a noble motive and desire until it's wrong. What it really goes back to is the only other time that you see this word red in the Hebrew is the red thread that was used to sew the tabernacle curtains together. It's actually connected to the tabernacle and the way that you find redemption in God. You come into the presence of God. And the other time you see this is in the red thread that is wrapped around the arm of Tamar's son. So Tamar, the other Canaanite, who by faith entered into the Abrahamic covenant through Judah, her father-in-law, she gave birth to two twins. And when the first twin came out, she wrapped a red thread around its foot to mark that this was the firstborn. Because when they come out looking like twins, you might get them all confused, but at least now we know who the firstborn is. And it's that son 
that continues the line of Christ that will ultimately lead to here. And what's interesting is that line that Rahab is going to marry into and continue the line to Ruth. And so you got Tamar, a Canaanite woman, and Rahab, a Canaanite woman, and Ruth, a Moabite woman, and they're the only three women that make it into the genealogy of Christ. And so that red thread is actually connecting you back to the last Canaanite woman of faith and then connecting you to the tabernacle, showing you that she's coming into the presence of God in the tabernacle by faith. By faith. It's her faith that's going to save her. It's not works. It's not the sacrificial system. Because even the sacrifices don't save you. The sacrifices are just a way of you demonstrating your faith. And so that scarlet thread is to let you know that she is going to enter into the tabernacle of God by faith in the same way that Tamar did. And that just like Tamar's kid continued the line of Christ, so was she. And that's the Christ connection. Not the blood and that kind of stuff, but you enter the presence of God by faith. And even a Canaanite woman, not completely righteous, can do it. This is what's going to mark her as saved. Now notice the the spies then respond by saying, anybody you get in this room will be saved. They basically say, we have chosen this room, this house, to be saved. And anyone who chooses to be in it will receive that salvation. Now what's interesting is they're basically saying this house has been predestined for salvation. And anybody who chooses to be in that house is going to be saved. Now, the whole predestination versus free will thing is a big argument that I don't have time for. And most of the time, I don't really care about that debate. But you need to understand that it's not predestination versus free will. It's both. And how they fit together, I don't know. But here's a good example. You will see this terminology again later in Ephesians. And Paul will keep saying over and over again, Christ has been predestined for salvation. Christ has been predestined for the kingdom of God. Christ, Christ, Christ. And then Paul says, all those who are in Christ will receive these blessings. Those who are in Christ will be saved. Those in Christ. And the same way, the only person who really seems to be truly predestined is Christ. And everybody who chooses to be in him is that. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that, but... I'm not, this is not theology and predestination. But I only say that because I want to paint the same picture here. They're saying this house has been chosen by God to be saved. But it's up to you to evangelize and go out and get as many people into this house as possible. And they'll demonstrate their faith by believing that this house has been predestined for salvation. And the same way that it's not I who've been predestined necessarily, but it's Christ. And I demonstrate my faith by being in Christ. I am not the one who goes to heaven, so to speak. I'm the one who is found in Christ, and he's the one who goes to heaven and leaves me there. Now, once again, like I said, it's way more complicated than that. You have to deal with a lot of passages in Romans and Ephesians. And there's lots of people who are more intelligent than I am, and I kind of disagree, but I just feel like that handles it a lot better. But this is what you see. And we're going to see this a lot more too with Israel. Because even Israel has been predestined by God for salvation. Yet Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, they're all going to be jumping into Israel and joining in on that train. Even though they weren't predestined. They weren't chosen. 
And so you see this idea where God typically picks a house or a nation or a people rather than individuals, and then any individual that chooses to be part of that becomes a part of that. And that seems to be more of the uniform picture throughout the Bible. And one of the reasons I take that view is that's the view I see over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Rather than really there's only about like 10 or 15 verses that say predestined and really complicated theology books, which are supposed to interpret those sentences in the light of the entire Bible anyways. What they're saying is this house has been saved. Agreed, verse 21, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Yahweh has surely given us the whole land into our hands, and all the people are melting in fear because of this. So they go back, and they report to Joshua. And if you've really been paying attention to the whole story, you're sitting there realizing, man, they really stink at being spies. (laughs) They didn't bring any military, economic, political, fortress, stronghold information back to Joshua in any kind of way. The whole focus is on their story with Rahab. And Joshua's not upset. The narrator doesn't condemn them, rebuke them. God doesn't rebuke them or condemn them. And it almost seems that this is really the whole point. You see, the the original guys, they went out, the 12, and they went out and spied because they wanted to see if the land was really what God said it was. And when they saw that it was what God said it was, they became distracted by the fearsome of it all, and they came back with a lack of faith. These spies went out, and they wanted to see whether the land was militarily strong or not. But because they were in connection to God, God derailed them on a completely different mission, and by faith they let themselves be journeyed on that and realized the real intent of that and came back with a different agenda. You see, when you don't have a faith in God, you go out and you see what you want to see and you do what you want to do. But if you're trusting God and following Him and having faith in Him, then when you go out, it doesn't matter what you set out to be. Eventually, you'll allow God to do whatever He wants with you and you come back a different way. And you realize, that's not all why I went there. But you were in tune with what God was doing. And they come back. But here is the other thing you need to realize. In one sense, this is an amazing story of her faith. One, one of the probably the greatest stories of a woman's faith, other than like Hannah and Ruth and Naomi. But at the same time, there's a huge tension here. God told Israel they weren't allowed to make any treaties or any alliances with any of the Canaanites. And that's exactly what they did. They disobeyed God and they made a treaty and alliance with Rahab and her family. Yet at the same time, this woman is coming to faith in Yahweh. Nowhere does God ever condemn this violation of the law. 
In fact, not only does he not condemn it, he honors it by keeping her house standing and her house only. It's not like they went in and continued their disobedience and killed everybody and saved that house. God is the one responsible for bringing down the wall. And you can even look at it as an incomplete failure because he missed that house or that he's honoring this treaty. And at the same time, he shows that he's honoring it by bringing her into the line of Christ And most of the time when people are absolutely disobedient and not trusting God, he leaves their names out of the book, out of the Bible. And not only does he not leave her name out, he inserts it into the genealogy of Christ. So what in the world do you do with a God who says, do not make any treaties with any of the Canaanites, and if you do, I will cut you off. And then they go and do that, and he honors it. He doesn't just accept it. He completely honors it and uses it. Because faith trumps the law. The law is not how you enter the kingdom of God. It's by faith. Here's the conundrum. You can go one route and say, law, 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 law. And then you miss your relationship with God. You miss the relationship with other people. You miss opportunities for the kingdom of God to happen. But you can all go to the other extreme and say, faith, 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 and you're completely disobedient to the law all the time, and you're not even in a relationship with God in the end. But this isn't about just obedience. Like, oh, I think because my faith is enough, I'll go out and kill somebody. This is about somebody joining. And here's the thing. Ultimately, who's behind this? It's God. And this should remind you of Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, they worshiped the golden calf. And according to the law, they were all supposed to be killed because of idolatry. Yet Moses, God says, I'm going to kill them all. And he would have every right to do that because the law said that. They sinned and they agreed to the law and said, we will do everything you promised us to do, told us to do. And if we don't, you can kill us. So they agreed to it. So this wasn't like a mean God who's just killing them because they didn't obey. This is a God who has every right to kill them because they're incredibly sinful and evil. They knew better because they were in a covenant relationship with him and they agreed to the terms of the covenant. So he goes, but Moses intercedes by faith and says, God, please forgive them. These are your chosen people, honor him. Now God should forgive them because that's his character. But at the time, same time, he should punish them because he's a just God and that's his character. And we talked about this in Exodus, it's very hard to be just and merciful at the same time. The minute you show mercy, you're not being just. And the minute you show justice, you're not really being merciful. And God's character is not the law. The law is an example of God's righteous character. But his character is also justice. His character is also love. It's also mercy. It's also forgiveness. And Paul's going to make the point that the law can't demonstrate that character of mercy. The law doesn't bring any mercy at all. And so you need to realize that the law is not God. And the law is not the ultimate example of God. And it's not the only way that God works. The law is the righteousness and the justice of God. But there's also the mercy and the love and the compassion of God. And Paul made it very clear the law doesn't show those. The law always condemns and always kills. And this is why, before the law was ever given, it says that Abraham believed and God credited him righteousness. Even though Abraham was having multiple wives, not trusting God, lying about his wife being his sister, all this kind of stuff. And this is why the repeating phrase throughout the Bible is the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk, 
Hebrews, Romans. How do you live? Not by obedience to the law, but by faith. But at the same time, if you truly have faith in God and you truly love Him, then you'll try and want to obey the law because that's what righteousness looks like. But at the same time, there's moments where you also need to look like the character of God, and that's love and forgiveness. And in this moment, they were so in tune with God that they got that, yes, the law says no treaties, but they weren't making, they got the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law of anti-treaties was making treaties with people who were pagan idolaters and yoking yourself unevenly with another god and another idol. If you want to go legalistic, it means no treaties. But if you get the spirit of God's character and you get his heart, then the law is always interpreted through God's character. And God's character was, don't be idol worshippers, so don't make treaties with them. But the minute she said, I'm not that. I don't want those gods anymore. I don't want these people anymore. I want your God. She wasn't the Canaanite anymore. And in that moment, faith trumped the law. And she entered into the law in obedience through faith. And God can get her on board with the law later. In the same way that David rapes a woman and kills her husband and a whole other soldiers along with him, and according to the law, especially being the king, I mean, Moses just got angry and struck a rock twice and got kicked out of the promised land. David is the king of Israel raping and killing people. And God says, I forgive you. You will not die. Because God in that moment can choose whether he's going to condemn David under the law or whether he's going to demonstrate mercy and forgiveness. And he will be right in either one that he does. And that's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus and the cross is the only place where law and mercy come together. Because God was completely just by pouring out all of his wrath on all the sins of the world by killing Jesus and slamming him into the ground. But he also showed his mercy and forgiveness by the fact that Jesus died instead of us. It's the only time in human history that justice and mercy come together in the same act. You cannot be just and merciful at the same time unless you have the cross. And so you need to understand, and it's not the law that gets you into Christ. It's not the law that gets you in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus says only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. But then Romans 8 says that we fulfill the requirements of the law when we're in Christ by faith here's the thing the law is good and the law is how I show God that I love him by being obedient to it because it is right is the example of righteousness and I'm called to be Christ-like and I'm called to be obedient and I'm called to be transformed by the renewing of my mind but don't let the law become so important so godlike that the rules I'll make you become that kind of a person that you miss faith and relationships and connections with people. Because as Jesus said, the Sabbath was not made, or man wasn't made for the Sabbath for him to be dominated by it. The Sabbath was made by man, for man so that it would lead him towards relationships in God. Now, if you want a longer discussion of the law, I've got a document on my website called the Mosaic Law and all that kind of stuff. And I talked about it in Exodus. But that's the gist. And so here's the thing. You are now in a tension where in one way they've completely got the heart of God, but at the same time they've kind of technically disobeyed the law. And yet God honors the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God's character in the law and the Spirit of God's character in redemption 
is what God has truly called us to. And this is how the conquest of Israel is begun. It's not beginning with the bloodshed of people. It's not beginning with the death of cities. It begins with the faith of a very unlikely woman. And that was the whole point of the conquest. The point was expand the garden. And that involved redemption as much as reducing a sin. Now, here's the other thing, though. Her and those few people are the only people who step out in faith. She made it very clear that everybody in Canaan had the same information that she did. And the one thing that you need to realize is not only is her faith incredible, but it also justifies the actions of God even more because they know all this, and yet they're so hard-hearted and evil, they still don't choose to accept God. Now, we'll talk about how God can do this to the Canaanites either next week or the week after that. We'll, we'll go through that whole thing because I know it's a big question and a rightful question. But it also shows you that she becomes a foil. And a foil means somebody who's the complete opposite to emphasize the other. And so the fact that she's the only one who comes to faith, the city becomes a foil to her and really emphasizes her amazing faith. But the fact that she comes to faith becomes a foil to the city and shows how horribly evil that they are that they don't do the same thing that she did. And so right here, God shows his true heart. It is not to wipe these people out. It's not to bring them under the hammer of the law. It's that they would know him and come to him. And unfortunately, only one family does that. 